0: Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wise Cracks Movie Podcast.
1: Show me the movie! (laughs)
0: Show me, show me
2: the X rating
0: of the original film. Show me the penis. Like, let's see it. Yeah, that too. Let's see it. Show
2: me the penis. Let's see it, it, Dirk. That thing, Mark. Yeah,
0: Dirk. (laughs) What up? I'm Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Raymond. Hello. And we've got Ryan. Sup, film fans? And this week we're going to be talking about the, was it an instant classic? It's definitely a classic now. Boogie Nights, directed by PTA, Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Mark Wahlberg, Julianne Moore, Burt Reynolds, Don Cheadle, John C. Riley, William H. Macy, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Heather Graham. All right, as always, we're going to go around and get first impressions. What was it like the first time we watched this movie? What was it like on repeated viewings and then this most recent viewing? But first, I do want to just give a quick shout-out to remind everybody out there that we have a Twitter. So please go follow us. It's smtm underscore pod, SMTM underscore pod. And also, we're live, so please make sure that you are engaging with us in the, us in the chats. We're going to engage with y'all if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever it is, but you want to get involved in the live goodness, of course you can do that. We always go live at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Tuesday. Enough admin stuff. First impressions, Raymond? What was it like the first time you saw this, and what was it like repeated viewings and then this most recent viewing? Go! uh
3: i can't even remember the very first time that i saw this uh this is one of my favorite movies uh i've watched it uh quite a few times at this point uh i think the first time i saw it was in high school um i remember uh getting my hands on the uh the two disc special edition dvd uh that i uh, i think the thumbnail art that we used for uh for this episode is is actually from that uh that dvd cover um, yeah, it was just, uh, a really fresh and exciting movie. Um, it's always a, a pleasure to rewatch. I, um, yeah, I, I love Paul Thomas Anderson. I think I've mentioned on the show, he's, he's probably my, uh, my favorite living filmmaker. Um, so it's always a pleasure to, uh, to, to, uh, review and, uh, discuss his work. So I'm excited to talk to you guys about it. Okay.
0: First thing then, where does Boogie Nights rank in his filmography for you? For me,
3: um, you know, I I'm actually not as crazy about the first half of his filmography. I think Hard Eight through Punch Drunk Love are all really solid, um, but Hard Eight Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love I'm not as hot on. I think Boogie Nights is really really self assured, and I, I love the energy that it has. Um, but I'm I'm a bit more partial to his uh, his later work. Uh, I've I've got to say like Phantom Thread, There Will Be Blood and then boogie nights is
2: is right in the hunt for third.
0: Okay. All right, Ryan, what about you, brother? Uh well,
2: same, one of my favorite movies ever. I'd put it in my top 10 probably. Wow. Um I've seen it countless times, love the shit out of it. One of the best modern movies. I don't know. You can gush about this movie all day. I definitely had a very fun viewing my first one. It was before I could even drive and I and I w- walked all the way to Target which from my house which was pretty far. But I was like, for some reason, I really wanted to go on a walk. And my mom was uh, was very strict about what movies I could watch as a kid. So there was no, you know, there was no me seeing anything like Boogie Nights, of course. Right. But then I went to Target and I bought it on VHS uh, uh, by myself. And then I went, snuck at home and I watched it on VHS in my room uh, with the door locked. And I was blown away. And, and yeah, I think it maybe kind of made it better too because I was like kind of on edge, you know. And it's about this like you know, salacious, you know, uh, uh, sex scene, obviously. Where there's a million mm-hmm. scenes, anyway. The movie rocked, and the first time I saw it, I don't think I fully comprehended how awesome it was, and it was, you know, then later on, as I got way more (laughs) into movies, like, I was like, we'll go back and watch it, and and every time, I'm kind of just blown away at how everything comes together, and how he fit, like, not only, it it really is one of those firing on all-cylinder movies, like, just how he directed it, this movie, I think, inspires young people to be, you know, every PTA movie does, but definitely... This one, I think, just you know, it's a film fans film, basically. It's It's got all these cool references. You can kind of pick it apart endlessly. But I, if you really, and I hope we do that today, but yeah, if you really break down the structure and how he's filming these scenes and stuff, and when he chooses to do really cool cinematic photography stuff, and then when he kind of just chooses to let the scene play and let these amazing actors he has just kind of roll with it. Like, it's a master class, if you will, on, I think, directing a really complicated ensemble movie, which is hard to do already. But then he weaves it together so well. Like, I'm never, to me, I'm never bored watching this movie, and it's fucking three hours long. And uh, uh, and I just want more the whole time. And then the, the the climax, to me, is one of the best scenes, like, ever, ever.
0: Uh, uh, anyway this is just a great movie the climax of a film about climaxes is the best is, yes. it, is it, the, yeah. the, how many We're terrible puns happy. are we going to uh, use in the, <laughs> the, the the course of this thing yeah look this is one of those a lot. this is one of those films that it, I feel like even if you haven't seen it you've seen it especially if you're somebody that's a film student or anyone who's studied video essays because you know for me there's that famous shot that everybody likes to talk about during the pool scene where it focuses on two people and then the camera just pans and it's the long one shot right where uh then it just mm-hmm. goes and it focuses on two other people and then it follows you know the woman into the water and then it goes underwater and so there's things like that um, <laughs> that are just like iconic sequences uh i feel like the uh the the scene with philip seymour hoffman um when he kisses Uh, Dirk, Eddie, I think that's one of the ones that has been kind of like talked about a lot. I mean, there's so many um, elements of this that have become iconic that it's one of those things that I feel like you see even if you haven't seen it. But even if you Mm -hmm. do that, even if you know about this film, I don't think that actually encapsulates what this film is. Like, we, we we use this word so often, like a je ne sais quoi, or that there's like a something special. This film just has like a magic about it, right? There's something about the yeah. style, the immersive camera techniques, the unique camera techniques, certain interesting editing techniques, um, approaches that kind of just get thrown in there um to kind of like mix things up but it never feels arbitrary it always feels like it fits exactly with the tone of wherever they are in the unfolding of the story the acting performances are fantastic and i don't know this film it just seems to have some magic about it and sometimes it can be so seamless or it can work so well that you forget how fucking hard it is to make a film that works like this right like like we can we can talk about Paul Thomas Anderson and say that he's you know one of if not the greatest living filmmaker at the moment right or let's say American filmmaker at the moment at the very least and and you can kind of say that and and you almost forget what is required to even have that kind of title and so for me i think watching this film i've been thinking a lot about that like why did this film just work so well besides the fact that i think it has some really amazing themes that we can unpack about sex about relationships about family about the 1970s and the transition into the 1980s and then maybe even from a sort of more meta perspective shouts to jared the old host we love jared here at wisecrack right the meta perspective let's get meta we used to have a button remember ryan the meta button oh yeah Damn. <laughs> um shouts to to jared who like the meta idea is this transition from film and cinema to videotape which is pta also one of those guys that bemoans the transition from film to digital as well is that one of the th- he he's very much uh uh yeah like a f-
2: people should go watch i think his quote is like yeah like the experience of people watching uh pictures uh 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 exposed through light onto a onto a wall should never go away yeah so i think he is kind of a film purist in that sense i don't know how you know what he thinks digitally he's not as
3: outspoken a disciple of like film as a, a as a capture and exhibition format as someone like christopher nolan or, or quentin tarantino who's probably the most uh uh, the most vocal of those disciples, I, I think, sometimes to his detriment. Um, mm-hmm. That's a totally different conversation. Um, what I what I really love about Paul Thomas Anderson is that while he has the he has the luxury and privilege of being able to work on, on his kind of preferred format, um, shooting on film, and even recently uh, premiering uh, Phantom Thread, his his last feature in seventy millimeter in a handful of uh, in a handful of three uh, theaters he is someone who is by all accounts always putting his neck out for independent filmmakers and and maintaining a sense of like uh, of uh, uh what's what what's the word uh he he has more uh, more of an uh, an embrace towards the democratizing effects of i was gonna say that, yeah he's not and,
0: he's not trying to gatekeep so much which is something yeah that, let's let's talk about this on the other side of the recap because this is one of the themes Absolutely. that i want to bring up because but just there to, is, yeah 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 so no this is great so just as like uh to to kind of um god damn it what's the fucking word i'm looking for where you foretell something? yes <laughs> just <to tease> that. <laughs> uh, I, Well, I, I
2: forgot to, 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 give my own ranking of where this falls in my PTA. Oh yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, you yeah. Where too. Is this in... well, yeah. Yeah. Where me... is this in the, in
0: the, yeah. It
2: sounds like me and Raymond are on opposite ends of the spectrum of PTA. Cause I, to me, oh. this is the he ultimate first half. Uh, Yeah. I, I definitely prefer. To... Yes. The answer is yes. But boogie nights, number one, by far. Um, then I'm going to go, there will be blood. Which I yeah I guess yeah. that's in his second half of his career. To me, it's kind of yeah I guess it's in the middle. But then uh, it's kind of the transition. Yeah, and then to I'm gonna the go filmmaker he is now. Yeah, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, and it's not that I don't like his new stuff. I do. I think it's super interesting. Like Phantom Thread was super interesting. I wouldn't call it a, a classic by any stretch. You know. Compared to these others, and then Master, I kind of put in the same boat. And Heron vice, I deplore. I hate that. I remember
0: you saying that. Yeah, and I <laughs> and I and I, I want
2: to yeah shake him. I'm like, what were you thinking? Um, I remember you I saying like that. Yeah. So that's definitely at the bottom, and then Hard yeah, you know, he's obviously got some growing pains, and I, you know, uh, maybe I think even the version I saw, he doesn't fully even subscribe to. So um, anyway, uh, the, the, that's my list.
0: Yeah, so this is top three for me. My favorite is There Will Be Blood, and for me, it's not even close. I mean, There Will Be Blood for me is a top ten movie. film. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I just think that it is it is a masterpiece from top to bottom, and it covers an era of um, like American history that I'm very fascinated with as well. I'm really interested in stories of like Americana and stuff like that, and and this one, a lot of a lot of PTAs films are exploring like LA. Right, and um, I think that's really interesting. But being so from LA, care. I kind of. D- I don't care as much about LA yeah. as um, people a lot of times do. Like, that's why I don't like the film La La Land that much because I'm like, Jesus Christ, okay, LA. But LA, fucking, whatever, man. Austin. There's plenty of
3: reasons to not like La La Land. <laughs> I Listen, like La we La Land. You don't need to be bashing.
0: You don't need to be bashing. I don't hate the film. I just am tired of LA patting itself on the back, right? Sure. Like, I'm like, I whatever, dude. It. Like, come on. Um, I'm from Orange County anyway, really, more than anything. So, you know, but. No, here nor there um but yeah so for me there will be blood but this is definitely top top two or three i think for me but um i
3: think i think you've definitely you guys have hit on something that there, like we mentioned before that there will be blood seems to be the moment when he starts working in like a decidedly different idiom um yeah. for for better or worse i think there is a pretty there, there's a pretty clear sort of mm. bisection between those first four and the latter four of his career
0: yeah,
2: but, sorry. to cut you off. I, I would say, I, I mean, I think it is interesting to break down his filmography because I'm, I I, I would say he's gotten obviously less accessible. Like to me, the, the cool part about Boogie Nights is that it's such a cinephile movie, but you could absolutely show it to your friends who don't you know watch these weird indie movies all the time, and they would totally dig it. It's a fun ride. Whereas I don't think the same thing for The Master of Phantom Thread. They're harder,
0: you know, they're more difficult to watch. Not in, you know, even not, there will be blood though. So what even there will be blood, I think is, is kind of inaccessible. Well, it's it's on the teeter
2: there because it's like it, I think that, 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 that there's obviously, you know, the, what it starts with, like, 20 minutes of silence, you know, and or something like that. Like, so there's that kind of stuff going on that's artistic and what, whatnot. But but I, I still think there's more to, to for people to master teeth on than a phantom Thread and, and especially an inherent vice, which is incomprehensible.
3: <laughs> I, I think I think Boogie Nights has has a lot more going on the surface. I I think something like Phantom Thread requires you to do a little bit more of the work. Absolutely. Maybe inherent Vice is the same, but I don't I don't think that that aspect of his work is necessarily relegated to any one portion of his career because I I think that Magnolia and Punch-Drunk Love in in some ways are are really dense and, and and nuanced and and they kind of make you lean in in the same way that uh, uh, mm. I think Punch Drunk Love has a, a much cleaner well you know uh, it, pun pun not intended a much cleaner thread between Punch Drunk hmm. Love and Phantom Thread than uh, something like Boogie Nights and in Phantom
2: maybe thread but a, you got Adam you know, Sandler I, I, there I can, you know there's no no I understand more...
3: and I, th- I, I I like Punch Drunk Love I, I apologize all I'm saying is that I I think that uh, you're you're absolutely right that Boogie Nights is much more accessible than a lot of his latter career stuff, but I I, I don't think that's necessarily because it's earlier in his career. That's the only point. Uh, okay, yeah. Well, I, I, to because me, it's I, a
2: very yeah. interesting choice to basically make these movies that he did in his early career, which to me, you know, are firing on all cylinders like that, and then to kind of very uh, deliberately say, you know, I'm going to make essentially a movie for him that 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 is, um, yeah, harder. Harder to grasp onto, which, like I'm saying, I'm not Mm. dogging on that. But I always, every time I go into a new movie, I'm always like, God, I hope that this is like one of his. I hope this is like Boogie Nights. I'm sorry, Mm. I can't help but do that. And I think that Soggy Bottom, his next movie, is going to do that because it's a fucking '70s high school comedy. It has to. It's going back to the valley. Yeah, it's going back to the valley. I think that he's probably going to be doing something more along Boogie Nights. Hopefully,
0: and um, you know, doesn't have to be exactly, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay, so let's do a quick recap here, and this is going to be a very brief recap because there's a lot of different storylines, and I'm not going to address that in the recap, but I'm sure we'll talk about them as we kind of dissect the film a little bit. So basically, here it is. Simple story. High school dropout, Eddie Adams is working in the kitchen of a nightclub when he's discovered by Jack Horner, a big porn filmmaker. Eddie wants to be a star, but has never really had an in, so to speak. However, he is gifted. He's got a big old piece of pipe. And Jack finds this out and then hires Eddie, who later changes his name to Dirk Diggler. Dirk becomes the biggest male porn star in the world, picking up awards, fame, and money along the way. Jack, however, fancies himself as an artist and wants to do something a little bit more. He wants to make a real film with a real story, so they all decide to make a series of action-themed porn films, with Dirk starring alongside friend and colleague Reed the fame ends up eventually going to Dirk's head a bit, and he and Reed get deeper and deeper into drugs this leads to mood swings and prevents Dirk from even being able to get aroused making it difficult for him to do his job, so he ends up lashing out at Jack, tries to fight him a little bit, so Jack fires him, and then Dirk and Reed say, screw all this madness and we're gonna try to start a music career, but that's unsuccessful they end up running out of money so they go deeper and deeper into the drug world, things downward spiral more for Dirk, leading him and Reed to almost getting gunned down at one point by a local Drug dealer, but eventually Dirk comes back to Jack, groveling, asking for forgiveness, and he receives this forgiveness, being welcomed back into the fold. As I said, this is a very brief recap. We didn't talk about Don Cheadle's character, we didn't talk about Amber, but these are all important things that we need to talk about and we will do on the other side of an ad. But I got to give a shout out to this week's sponsor, Skillshare. Look, everybody, you've heard me talk about Skillshare. Skillshare is legit. It's an online learning community where you can connect with other like-minded people and creatives and where you can explore projects that you're passionate about. And this is why Skillshare is so cool, because you can unleash your creativity and pursue passions right from the convenience of your home. I know that everyone is kind of teetering on lockdowns. We're in, we're out. I'm personally in the middle of a big lockdown here in Sydney, which we hadn't had before, I know some people in the states are coming out of lockdowns, but some cities are getting back into lockdowns, so it can be really difficult to connect, especially if you are a creative. This is why Skillshare is great, because that community is right there at your fingertips. All you have to do is be able to get online and sign up for one of their packages. And if you sign up for their premium membership, uh, you can get a free trial by going to skillshare.com slash smtm. That is, if you want the premium membership, we can give you a free trial by going to skillshare.com slash smtm, or you can click the link down in the show notes, and you can take advantage of classes on iPhone photography, drone filming, editing, uh, learning how to improve your produ- productivity, videos for Instagram, art activism, etc., 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 etc let so go to skillshare.com slash smtm or click the link down in the show notes and you get a free trial of their premium membership all right let's talk more about boogie Nights. so we've been talking a little bit about pta um so let's just do this let's do the total film geek thing um what makes what makes this film so freaking good remember how i said like it's easy to kind of almost take it for granted that it's so good cuz you watch it and then you're like oh shit yeah most people can't make films like that why what does he do what what does he do like what what is the magic that he is able to conjure by doing things that maybe the average filmmaker would not be able to do ryan what do you think i think it's uh
2: uh what I learned a lot from just listening to him talk and stuff is, is and kind of like I alluded to at the beginning is he puts so much faith in the act and just basically casting, you know, like it's just how important casting is like, like he has this incredible stable of actors in this movie, John C. Riley and, uh, and uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Burt Reynolds, you know, all just giving the performance of their lives and yeah, they had good material, and he probably knows that he has good material, but it's it's like, okay, he, he's figured out as much as he can on his own, uh, and, and he's just obviously a very creative person, so that's a big part of it, but, but then trusting your actors, knowing and working with them. And then, and then really like, you know, they say 90% of good directing is casting. I think Robert Altman said that or something like that, which is also Robert, this Robert Altman's DNA
0: is all over this movie. Yeah. I was going to say this is very Altman-esque. Yeah. Yeah. Big ensemble. He was was kind of mentored by Altman. Altman. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Is that an AFI, an AFI connection or what's that? Was that an AFI connection or was that kind of,
3: um, I can't remember exactly how he got linked up with Robert Altman. Uh, P.T. Anderson's dad, Ernie Anderson, was kind of, um, uh, he, he was a pretty well-known voice actor. So he, he sort of just existed in these circles. Um, I know that late in Altman's uh, life and career, like P.T. Anderson was uh, on set for much of Prairie Home Companion to take on a lot of the directing duties when Robert Altman wasn't doing so well. Um, so they, they had a pretty close working relationship and you can definitely see, like you were saying, Ryan, you can definitely see Altman's influence, on, uh, especially on these early uh, ensemble pictures like this in Magnolia. Totally.
2: Mm. And yeah. so, so yeah, I, I would, uh, and, and also you got to remember that the first script of this was way different, right? It was a hard NC-17, like tons of you know, oh. sucking, fucking everything. It was like, yeah, it was way more sex uh, full frontal sex in the movie, which is unbelievable when you think about the final project product because the, i I'm amazed how kind of little of the sex they sprinkle in, but how well it's executed like you know that that mm. that awesome scene of the uh, the first scene when the the first sex scene and it's really just. Push ins on people's faces for ninety nine percent of it. You know, you get a little mm. bit at the beginning of him them getting ready, and then you're just you're watching the reactions. And I, and when I were, first saw that movie, that uh, that was kind of where I was like, got really on board because I'm like, wow, that's such an interesting way to shoot this. You know, sex scene is everyone just watching it and, and how and their amazement at the performance that Mark Wahlberg's He's giving. Watching it. them, watching them. Yeah, him. and yeah. then they go literally into the camera. It's just doing all sorts of cool um, uh, camera stuff. And so, yeah, like, like, it's amazing that there was way more sex and that, 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 that wasn't planned from the beginning. That's not by design, Mm. you know? So he's, to me, he's just such a good director in terms, he's seen all these uh, movies, obviously, and references that he can probably be like, okay, I have to make it an R-rated movie. Um, And he's, he's creative enough to, to, to still run with it and make it cool and make it seem like it was planned from the beginning. So.
0: Great material, great acting, uh, uh, and then just a creative guy. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to describe. Yeah. Well, it real quick, just... before I before I kick it to good? Raymond, uh, I just want to say, kind of piggybacking off of that, maybe one of the things that unites all of those things, except for maybe casting is is something that you don't really have control over. You kind of relinquish the control quite a bit. But he also seems to have a really strong point of view. So when you're talking about that sex scene, the film isn't about sex, was what it sounds like the first draft maybe of the film, the NC-17 version, would have been. The film would have been about sex. This film is about our perceptions of the sex industry or our consumption of certain performative acts. Um, on camera so Mm -hmm. when you get that opening scene you get everybody looking at it you know you've got William H Macy's character who probably is looking with some kind of disgust and maybe guilt and shame because he's embarrassed by his own sexual prowess in relation to his his wife who's sleeping with other men and you know he's in the industry and maybe he's feeling some sort of like um, maybe he's emasculated before Dirk Diggler right but then you also get the shots into the camera Right, Like you're actually looking at the image upside down in the camera and then shots of the reel of the film kind of running out on the camera. So it's about the filming of the sex scene rather than it being about the sex per se, which is, again, Paul Thomas Anderson making a statement about the film industry, right? Or about the the creation of art, right? Which Jack then fancies himself as an artist. So I think it's also that really strong perspective that he takes on it in dealing with the subject matter that might kind of deal with what you're addressing. But yeah, go ahead, Raymond. What were, what were you going to say? Oh yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I didn't, I not Ra-
3: I, I, I can't remember. Go okay. Well,
0: I, I was just going to say to piggyback
2: on what you're saying that, uh, uh, that, and it's the fact that he knows the audience is like in their mind, it's like, yeah, the, like the sex is on the front of our minds. It's, it's like, this is such a weird scene. Uh, uh, just imagine being in that room with those people that are just having sex, but it's, it's, it's cool how he downplays the sex because it's like, all right, I know that, you know, that's what the audience is thinking but but I'm going in a different route. And, and you're just kind of almost seeing how the laissez-faire nature of what these people do every day. And like you alluded to the, uh, you know, the, how they're a family and stuff at the beginning, you really get that by the end, how these people are united by this weird industry that they're in. And it, yeah, it attracts these weird characters. And he does such a good job of, of bringing that out cinematically.
3: Yeah, and I think there's there's an interesting ambivalence uh, regarding their relationship with with Dirk Diggler, where he is, or Eddie Adams, uh, whatever you prefer, um, where he is, like, they have that great... Who plays the colonel again, the older guy? I can't guys, remember the actor, into, yeah. Yeah, me neither. Right. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Um, uh, where he's first introduced to him in that early pool party scene. And he goes, yes, may I see it? And, and he, uh, Eddie takes his dick out and you just see, the guy's face and he's just staring down for what seems like an eternity with his mouth slightly agape and then he like looks up and goes why well, thank you eddie <laughs> and yeah it's just like and then
0: and then after this he says, why thank you the camera still just holds on him for about like a good three to four seconds and i'm like is he thinking cha-ching in his head or is he thinking like, oh, oh my god yeah. that's a marvel of nature like what is he thinking you know
3: and there, there is this, you know, a lot of the time it's played for laughs. Like, for example, Ryan, you were talking about that first scene that he's performing with Julianne Moore, uh, where everyone is just kind of, like, standing in awe of it. I think, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman mm. almost drops his boom pole. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the there's something interesting that the movie kind of keeps driving at that, like, he is weirdly sort of... Uh, he is successful almost in spite of of himself like in spite of Eddie Adams like people are essentially I I remember this anecdote about um, Clint Eastwood directing a scene and Clint Eastwood is known for just being very like Perfunctory on set. If you done. hit your marks and get your lines right, and everything's in focus, and you know yada yada yada, like if we don't if we don't need another take, we're not doing another take. So mm. get get your performance locked in in that first or second take. And there's this story of him. I can't remember on on what movie. I'll have to look this up and maybe post it on Twitter afterwards. Um, but there was one actor who was cast to like hand Matt Damon an envelope, or whoever the star of the movie was. And Clint Eastwood relates this anecdote about her kind of deciding that like, oh, this walk-on role where she just hands a person an envelope was going to be her Academy Award play. And that she comes in and she sort of like half extends it and then she pulls it back and she has like a worried look on her face as she's holding the envelope. She looks down at it and then she sort of timidly hands it forward with a look of regret and he just kind of like cuts and then he pulls her aside and goes, hey... I can't tell you how much this movie is not about you. And (laughs) Mm. if I Hmm. could have just hired your arm, I would have. (laughs) And you get this sense not to jump too far ahead. Obviously, like this, I'm going to jump to the very end. uh, So, spoiler alert. But I, I think, you know, in a great movie, the ending is always the film's conceit. And I think there's something very telling in the final frame of this picture that while there is a sense of hopefulness and there is this sense of family and community that pervades the entire film, the fact that Dirk Diggler's head is completely out of the frame when he pulls out the prosthetic penis and that's what the movie ends on. That, And as he's saying, I'm I'm a star, I'm a star, Mm. I'm a big, bright, shining star. You get this notion that like, Oh, this is this is actually pretty grim because this guy this guy's head is so fucking useless. He's too stupid to realize mm. the thing that makes him special is like if if Burt Reynolds could just hire his fucking dick, he probably would. And yeah. there they, like when you watch it in that in that framework, it is one of those things where by the end of it it's good to see everyone else kind of like sort of finding their footing again. But you do have this sense that, like, yeah, Eddie's probably going to fuck this up for himself again. Like, it, it it's just one of those things. He seems like so he's is kind this, of on so a collision is this a, course.
0: Is this like a tragic ending then? Because so we know that the actor that Dirk Diggler is based off of is John Holmes, who tragically dies of AIDS after knowingly infecting multiple people we don't know how many people but with AIDS right so John Holmes is not exactly some sort of heroic figure like this isn't this isn't like I'm a star I'm a star like fuck yeah this is like him trying to tell himself that he's a star so that he can get it up maybe I don't know it's like you know there's that poster on his wall that says American Dream it's like all he wants is to be a star so the question is is he happy in his successes or is this really a story about like finding family finding a place even in the midst of a difficult world because like like what's going on there what, what do we think
3: Ab- absolutely this is a movie about uh, about family i mean like all of paul thomas anderson's movies are in some way or another about a uh, someone grappling either with uh their lack of a father figure or uh their reunion with a father like every single one of his main characters up to a point I think maybe inherent vice stresses this theory a little bit but most of his movies are about characters who are trying to fill a paternal void in their lives whether it's you know Eddie Adams in this who uh clearly sees Jack Horner as a surrogate father his first movie John C. Riley sees Philip Baker Hall as a surrogate father Uh, punch drunk love Uh, uh, Adam Sandler's you know paternal void is filled by a bunch of hen pecking sisters Um, like it it, it's uh, like Magnolia obvious probably the most obvious one um, that uh, I think PTA even says that's most his most autobiographical film so I do think that this is like absolutely 100 percent about family and there is a lot of hopeful optimism at the end of it for other members of the family and maybe and maybe even eddie himself but the movie never gives you the sense that he is like he's always able to land on his feet because he's able to retreat to these people who are willing to commodify the thing that makes him special within within their market essentially like and that's, that's the one thing that makes me think, like, you know, it could be hopeful. Maybe he could keep a, a good head screwed onto his shoulders, but you, you just don't know. Like I said, he is, I think, that ending scene, or rather that final frame... Uh, would imply that he has up to this point been successful in spite of his uh, uh, of you know what makes him him his head Mm. because he thinks what makes him him is dick Um, (laughs) so I I don't know I think in, in some ways it is tragic certainly for Dirk Diggler but it's it's certainly you know it's kind of a poison chalice like Finding this this community that welcomes you, but is also willing to like enable the darkest parts of you, just so that they can commodify the, the like the one thing of yours that they're able to really like glam onto, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I, uh sorry for rambling.
2: Oh no, uh, it was interesting. I was going to say because c- c- I I that, to me that's an interesting take. At basically everything you just said. I would push back though on. I think that it's a not. Uh, tragic ending in the sense that it, okay, the, the key is, uh, and, and the thing that you said about that he only wants his dick, maybe at the beginning of the relationship, but to me, the s- nice, sweet thing at the end is literally Burt Reynolds forgiving the, uh, him on his mm. doorstep. And, and it, when he comes back sobbing, you know, there's no reason the prod- for him to prodigal take him son back. Returns. The prodigal yeah. sudden returns, and it's just like. Like he could have absolutely just said, "Look, you're you're nothing to me now. You're a washed up porn actor. Like get out of here. Uh, there's the next hot kids in town." But to me, the fact that he's still shooting a porn at the end, and uh, uh, it's like, yeah, I you're my you're my son. You're my you know I love you. Like like of course, let's work together in spite of uh, of all this. And so I, I love that about it because to me I do think that the main uh, theme is family. However, I will say that that. I think that you are supposed to take from the him standing up and showing his dick is a little bit how diluted he is in his mind, you know? It's like, <laughs> like any... And, and so it is, in yeah. that way, it is a little sad. Like, he's, you know, he's kind of uh, got the Sunset Boulevard syndrome where he's just like, a, you know, he can see himself... Uh, he's already seen himself get replaced, but now it's like he's at the twilight of his career, and he has to just pump himself up, you know, to make himself this this thing he used to be. So in that sense, it's almost like mm-hmm. a cautionary tale about fame and stuff, and and whatever that I think that they're leaving you with. to kind of just twist, the really sweet Beach Boys medley you just had with uh, with all the characters coming back, right. So I think it is both in a way, but I think overall I leave that movie very happy. Like, man, these guys are doing what they love. They're hanging out. They're a family. Yeah, they're weird and fucked up in the head, but so are we all. <laughs> and this is great. I don't go, man. He's just going to fuck this up again. And that's really yeah. the message PTA wanted to send me. You know? And
3: I, I don't think the, I don't think the movie is necessarily saying that. I'm just saying there is there is an implication that this could go either way sure. because it also bears mentioning that. Eddie's not the only person who's down on his luck at that point. You know, Jack is kind of washed up, um, or at least he feels as though he's been deprived of his his sort of mojo with regards to having to transition to video. His uh, yeah. his traditional financier is now in prison, so he's having to kind of, like, make a deal with the devil with Philip Baker Hall, who's a, a, a big proponent of... Uh, what's what's his name? Floyd Gondoli. <laughs> such a great name. Um, uh, who's such a big proponent of videotape. Um, you know, there there is this sense that, like, yes, it ends on an optimistic note on the surface, but there is still the implication that as much as—and I and I do think there is a genuine fondness and even love between these characters—there still is a sense, though, that Jack may be using Eddie as much as Eddie is using Jack by the end of the film, because— Oh, I've kind of lost my mojo, and I know that when we were really clicking, he and I—he was my muse. If I can mm-hmm. get him back in front of the camera, maybe we can make a go out of this thing again, even if it is on videotape. Let's make film history on videotape, as he keeps saying during a, uh, what's the, what's the segment that he does with Roller Girl uh, on on the on on the Prowl? It's actually based on an original, um, or not an original. It's it's based on, uh. Uh, a thing that was called on the prowl where uh there were porn producers who would do that with uh, video cameras back in the day um but I I can't remember what they call it in the movie itself My, my mind is blanking right now but um apologies uh I only bring that up to say Ryan I you know I don't think the movie is necessarily a tragic ending but I do think there there are enough seeds planted to to suggest that like Well, they may not be out of the woods yet. You know, there are still Mm. tough times ahead for this industry and by extension, these characters.
0: Well, and this is right before the AIDS epidemic, too, which is why I brought up John Holmes earlier. Right. So if this is the transition from late 70s into early 80s here, this is right before that happens, which is going to ravage the, the or at least affect the film industry in a lot of ways. Um I I think a couple other themes that are interesting that we can think about. One that is you know how we had like the meta uh, alarm and we used to have like a, a problematic alarm. I think we should add like a Freudian or Oedipal alarm. So every time there's like a fucking Freudian theme and I bring it up, the alarm bells should be going off because it isn't even subtle in this fucking movie, okay? Like clearly he refers I mean Jack is referred to as daddy and Amber is referred to as mommy and there's the scene when he's brought back the prodigal son returns dad embraces and then there's the scene of Eddie Dirk crying in Amber's lap as she's consoling him like a mother would except the difference is is that he's he's having sex with his mother um throughout the film on camera and i believe off camera too so you mm-hmm. know there is definitely some pretty heavy oedipal themes that are being explored as well And I think what's really interesting is you take that family, the Jack-Amber-Dirk triangle, and you juxtapose that with Eddie's family, which is the mom who is very harsh and very condescending, and then the father who is very sort of um, demure and non-assertive in any way. And then you really get this like juxtaposition of that family life into this other family life, which makes you understand why this film in some ways is hopeful because he finds a place where he didn't have a place before. You know, he had a family that was very difficult. They didn't accept him. He didn't have a, a father figure, really, somebody he could look up to, right? And then all of a sudden he does find that. Now, whether or not we think that that is the right, quote-unquote, type of uh, family to to ethically raise a child um, is something that the film kind of explores, Like, right, that we can kind of reserve judgment on because there's also... That interesting um, storyline with Amber who is dealing with her own custody issues, with her own biological son, right? Not the uh, sort of adopted family of, of the porn world, right? And how she's not able to have custody of the son because of what she does. But then she's also able to fulfill her role in the mother space, subject position almost, in that family. So she too is able to have a place even though in her kind of like um, her own marriage didn't work out, and her relationship with her son is estranged because of this industry. The industry also gives her a home, so there's some really interesting kind of tensions that I think this film presents by giving us these and various that's, concepts. That's mirrored
3: yeah. by uh, by Don Cheadle's uh, arc near the end of the film as well. Like he, mm. th- that's one of the I think the master strokes in this movie. In this movie, and I've I've talked about this before, so apologies if I'm just a sucker for this uh, in film is that uh, these characters are. Are judged by other characters within the universe of the film, but they're never judged by the filmmakers. And you you do see a degree to which Amber's sort of the, the void in her life is is filled by these folks who are, uh, uh, you know, uh, emotionally receptive to her. And uh, you you see that with Don Cheadle as well. That there's kind of like a karmic rebalancing that after he is dismissed by the bank. Um, who focuses on, you know, we can't be in business with a pornographer. Um, and then he goes, and there's that insanely, like, traumatizing sequence in the donut shop. Uh, but he ends up leaving with the money that he needed to open up Buck's super, super stereo store, whatever he calls it. Um, so there there is this weird way in which, I, I, I think this movie sometimes gets a bad rap for being judgmental of its characters, or or reducing them uh, to sort of caricatures or, or stereotypes of this industry, or punishing them as a result of of their impropriety or perceived societal impropriety, um, but I, I I actually think it's quite the opposite. There 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 seems to be like a, a a karmic balancing that you know Paul Thomas Anderson sort of like steps in and hands him the money through this sheer force of coincidence which is something that he goes on to explore in like every single other one of his i mean magnolia is the the ur text with that like how obsessed he is with with just circumstance and coincidence heart eight also has uh touches of that with like the thing about uh john c riley's um matches in his pocket lighting on fire uh he he does have these weird things that that just seem like random Uh, moments of the universe either punishing people or calling them in in one direction or another Uh, but in this one I I think it's definitely utilized to to reward these folks in a society that has otherwise spurned them.
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah I I think that that's I'd add that on to another reason I love this movie and think this this movie is so cool is like it's it's weirdly indulgent like like but in a good way like like that that donut shop scene is you know that would get cut in another movie before it even got shot, people would be like, well, do we really need this to tell the story? You know what I mean? But like, no, <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson's telling this three hour epic opus, you know, and and he will go on these tangents, you know, even the, the uh, William H. Macy uh, wonders where he's going, you know, finding the wife and stuff. That's a really awesome scene that really fleshes out his character. Got and uh, uh, and yeah, it's super tragic, but like, like that, you know, just how he sh- shoots it and everything it's also unique and works together, but I and 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 I think that it, it's contrary to a lot of mainstream movies that uh, would be made like like this. I don't know, they would they would just well, cut that shit out. Yeah, yeah, it adds it, a texture.
0: Yeah, exactly. a good like, it adds a texture. That's You know, like when you when you read all the fucking screenwriting books, it's like, does this scene? Push the protagonist's narrative forward in an explicit way. Da, 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 da. But one of the things that this scene, like, let's take, for example, the Bill Macy scene where he uh, looks for his wife, goes out, gets the gun, and then shoots her, and then kind of kills himself or whatever. One of the things that these films or that these scenes do is they add texture to what it is that this film is kind of presenting in terms of its concepts, right? About like masculinity, about sexual prowess, about, you know, this is also a time where you have an industry, the, the porn industry. That is oftentimes viewed um, from a feminist lens as allowing women to have control over their pleasure and how pleasure is um, is pursued in bodily autonomy, right? So there's actually a really interesting essay that I just want to give a quick shout-out to. Um, It's on uh, open access, so it's on like a digital – or creative commons. It's called Historical Omission and Psychic Repression in Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights by Tanya Modleski. Um, Whoa. And uh, I'll probably tweet it out, but uh, just if you Google any of those words if you're interested, um, the author basically goes into a lot of these other themes um, and actually coins the, the term male weepies. And says that this film is actually like a a form of weepy cinema, like male weepy cinema, where uh, you have this like melancholic figure that is being explored through like the loss of uh, of a fantasy. And what is it that's lost? It's in this like act of psychic repression about male virility, control over um, control over sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. And this is one of the themes that the film explores. This essay is critical of the film, but I think we don't need to necessarily rush to such a criticism, and I'd rather just kind of like present this as something that we can think about, to explore as these ideas that are out there that we can kind of dig through thinking about this. And then one of the other themes that we, we I think we have to mention is the issue of how homosexuality is treated in this film, because you have Philip Seymour Hoffman's character who makes a pass at Eddie, and Eddie is—I I don't know fully how to read that scene. Is Eddie, like, disgusted, like, like I'm not gay, don't try it? Or is it more like, dude, what are you doing? Like, come on, I'm not into you? Or, like, what's going on there? Like, is, 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 is he trying to distance himself from the gay person? Which then makes it interesting when later he gets beaten, gay bashed, quote unquote, um, by that group of people. And then we're meant to kind of feel sorry for him. And maybe even um, empathize with uh, with the homosexual community, but this is also a figure who distanced himself from that identity position. So again, there's some interesting points of tension here that the film is kind of presenting to us, and I think that fits into the industry at that time, right? Into and into the social landscape at that time as yeah, well. Yeah, I think so. he just said it. it's
2: yeah. He I think he was act he was like. It was he. he loves uh, the character Philip Seymour Hoffman plays as a friend, and he was obviously confused yeah. about what he did. But yeah, there was totally an element of "I'm not gay," you know, kind of yeah. thing going on. Like like, what are you doing, you know? Uh, but but, and, and probably if it wasn't his buddy, he probably would have had a way more extreme, you know, maybe even physical reaction. You know, is the way I read it.
3: Yeah, po- possibly. I think Dirk in this movie is is portrayed as someone who is comfortable with the like the notion of homosexuality or at least at, at the very least he's comfortable, you know, from the moment that Jack meets him in the restaurant. He he asks him if he wants to watch him masturbate like he has performed, uh, you know, sexual acts in front of men before, uh, like with the explicit notion of uh, of pleasing them. Um, so it is one of those things that's kind of like th- this is something the porn industry still struggles with today. Is this sort of like latent uh, homophobia? I, I think that he may not necessarily have any any problems with uh, with Scotty's sexuality. He, he he may be surprised or disturbed by it, uh, or he may just feel uncomfortable having that affection turned towards him because. Mm. most, at least from the moment that he gets involved with uh, Burt Reynolds and the whole crew, all of the, you know, the romantic or intimate scenes are totally commodified, whether it's him and Roller Girl on the couch so that Jack can, you know, quote unquote, see him in action, um, or in front of the camera while they're filming. You know, the only time that we see like an earnest off-camera moment of intimacy, at least I'm maybe unfairly conflating intimacy with sexual uh with sex acts uh, is when he's with his girlfriend at his parents' place uh, mm-hmm. before he you know before he meets or maybe it's after he meets him but you, you know what I'm referring to yeah um, yeah, yeah so I, I think it's one of those things that he may not necessarily the film may not necessarily be implying that he's uncomfortable with uh Scotty's sexuality but he may just be uh not expecting it in that moment. He, and he, he may be, you know, turned off by the notion of having like that kind of intimacy with a man. While when it's more performative, he's more open to it. Personally, I, I if, have you seen the Dirk Diggler story, the short film on which this is based?
0: No. A while ago.
3: I forget it though. In that short, he's explicitly bisexual. And mm. I think that they're, they're so, there's something that Paul Thomas Anderson is is trying to accomplish by switching from that to this. Uh, I think it is, you know, obviously a deliberate choice. He mm-hmm. has entertained the notion of uh, of this character within the, as a, a bisexual person rather than uh, a sort of heteronormative figure. Um, but uh, yeah, I I think that. Uh, as as it's portrayed in this movie, it could be seen as problematic, but uh, you also have scenes between him and Scotty later in the movie, like Scotty is hanging around when they're planning to to rip off Alfred Molina in one of the greatest scenes in film history. That's fucking great. Um, but, it, you know, I, I think that his relationship continuing with him after that sort of implies that he he's not, like, all of a sudden uncomfortable with Scotty. It may just be one of those things where he's he's not comfortable with, like earnest intimate homosexuality Mm. uh maybe he's only comfortable with it in a performative or commodified sense but um you know it's it's definitely a minefield that they're negotiating with Mm. yeah
2: that's a good way to put it and but can we give a props to marky mark's performance in that uh, for the whole movie but just like (laughs) i i even then he's
0: like why'd you do that scotty why'd you do this you know like 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 you i you listen i I gotta give i gotta give all props to mark Wahlberg because i Listen, I I enjoy Mark Wahlberg as a cultural figure. I don't always love him as an actor. Okay, but in this movie, like. In this movie though is fucking perfect. That 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 you just did a great impression, Ryan, with his voice. That he kind of that's his like go to a lot of times. That that kind of tone and and I don't know. I don't always love him, right? Like like I love him in doses, but in this film, I think it's fucking perfect. It's because he's this bright eyed kind of like almost naively. I don't know. There's something so youthful about him, and it it just fits kind of perfectly, and I love it. But I don't I don't always tend to love. Marky Mark
3: yeah I'm not I'm not a huge fan of when he commits like hate crimes and shit like that which was just a couple years before this movie
0: oh was um, that a thing I is, forgot all about well, that yeah, yeah,
3: he was, yeah, yeah what, like I mean that's one right. uh, I, I think he was slightly older than that um, but uh, it's it's one of those complicating factors that like Mark Wahlberg by all accounts doesn't seem like that great of a person I think he is very well cast in this film uh, I think PTA's first choice was Leonardo DiCaprio uh, who was briefly attached but ultimately dropped out to do Titanic. Um, I I could see that being an interesting movie but I do think that uh, Mark Wahlberg is very well cast in this film. I think he has the right energy that that sort of like naivete and um you know. i
2: i couldn't see it being with anybody else like to me he just <laughs> he is this character and uh and it was, and yeah. the thing about it, it was a huge risk too for uh his career like he was coming off the huge you know uh Marky Mark in the funky bunch and stuff and, and yeah uh i think he'd made the bas- basketball diaries before this maybe um not much really though maybe made that after either yeah. way
3: well he he disavows this movie now
2: oh yeah because he's a super catholic yeah. right you know like like
3: yeah he's super super Catholic. that's a superpower right
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm not even gonna take that bait because there's just too much to go there as as i will i will say
3: there, <laughs> there is so one more thing before you before you transition austin I, I will say there is one one thing that i think is kind of interesting that he is doing maybe he's not doing this Consciously with with Mark Wahlberg's persona, because I, I I think this was on the page before he ever cast Mark Wahlberg. But there is kind of a telling, a, a a telling sort of aspect of his psychology in this that he's constantly telling Jack, like it's not sexy, it's not sexy when guys mm. are, are rough with girls on camera and blah blah blah. Mm. We we got to be sexy, and then it shows it shows footage of him as as Brock Landers. <laughs> And this is, like, the character he conceived of as, like, the sexy alternative to, you know, the Johnny Wads of the world who comes in later in the movie. Um, And there's just a a clip of him as Brock Landers that I think is sort of spliced into a montage where he's just, like, towering over a woman. And he goes, shut the fuck up or I'll hit you in the goddamn face. And you're just like, okay, so clearly his, his ambitions of being, like... He has a very different notion of like, oh, it's not it's not sexy to to be rough with women. It's not sexy to abuse them or assault them and blah, blah, blah. And then like two movies later, it's he's completely assimilated that sense of uh, of, you know, sexuality, uh, sexuality or dominant sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, And there is there is something about the character where like there is that boyish earnestness to him and that sort of like eagerness to please. Um, But I I also think Paul Thomas Anderson is really, really good at harnessing the the darker aspects of his personality as well. But sorry. uh, Sorry to cut you off there.
0: No, uh, I was just going to say before we wrap up and get into a voicemail here, what is a favorite sequence? You mentioned the scene with Alfred Molina. That is a great friggin scene. So have a think while I'm finishing this sentence as to what your favorite sequence or scene is. Ryan, I think, already has it. Go.
2: I can't pick my favorite, but but but. Uh, him and John C. Riley's first hangout where when we're just hanging on the two shot of him and they're both being like, "How much you bench press?" You know? And yeah, they, like, yeah, yeah. That's a great. You, like, you like Star Wars? I don't know. It's just like he's see, seen that movie Star Wars. <laughs> People say I look like Han Solo. <laughs> yeah, you know.
0: That's and a really there, good you John just, C. Reilly. You never wanna, I yeah, that, that was. Um, yeah,
2: I love that.
3: Basically, love John C. Riley. He's so good. Yeah, I love yeah, when he, they say when he they're like, so "Okay,
0: good. so how, how much do you bench?" You we'll go at the same time, and they go one, two, three. You, you didn't say anything. You didn't say anything either. That, <laughs> that's, a gr- that's a great little sequence. Yeah, yeah. That is sort
3: of the progenitor of these stepbrothers. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Yeah. Um, no, also, real quick, I, I, I just want to uh... say too, John oh, C. Riley
0: and Philip Seymour Hoffman, they did um, a Broadway version of a show that I just recently did a couple months ago called True West. Um, either Actually, was it on Broadway or was that the Lincoln Center? I can't remember where it was. Uh, it was either Broadway, Off-Broadway, Lincoln Center, something like that, one of the big, big spaces. And uh, they basically, this, uh, just a few years after this film was made, so they did a lot of work together in theater as well. So it's kind of amazing to look at this cast and recognize that these people have known each other and worked together on really substantial projects, not just with Paul Thomas Anderson, and in other things like we've mentioned but also with one another so there's like this community there's this family thing that um that i think also comes through what pta is doing because maybe he has a family right like maybe his own personal i don't know about his personal life maybe his own personal family has some things that were lacking but he's found a family or he's created a family in the art community so uh this scene that you're talking about kind of makes me think about that because that's such a a brotherly type of relationship but raymond favorite sequence or scene
3: um, well, I mentioned Alfred Molina. That one's really, really tough to beat. Um, but uh, I, I also think that uh, just to, to, to give some credit to, uh, to Heather Graham, oh, yeah. the On the Prowl sequence that's shot on videotape. Yeah, and she's, it, it's, it's just those really long, unbroken takes. And when that guy is sitting across the, the, the car from her, or the limo from her, and he's saying, like, I think her, her name is Brandy. It's the only time that we hear her as anything other than Roller Girl. And mm. he says something like, your, your name's Brandy, right? We went to school together, blah, blah, blah. And just like, she's mm. doing so much with absolutely no dialogue. And then when she finally pipes up, she just kind of says like, nope, no, that's not me. And then she's sort of like looking at Burt Reynolds to like, are you gonna bail me out here? Like, yeah. and, and I think that this movie does sometimes uh, get criticism, uh, maybe not unfairly uh, with its uh, portrayal of women. Um, but I, I do think that it, there is an honesty to uh, to the manner in which Heather Graham is uh, uh, portrayed or positioned within this film as, uh, once again, a commodity within this industry. Mm. And uh, her humanity is, like, constantly being denied to her. And even in that sequence where she has, like, this sort of father figure next to her who can't even like recognize how awkward this might be for her and she's like looking straight down the barrel of the camera and the way that that videotape is kind of like has the light tracers because of how it's transferred it's just it's just one of those really well conceived sequences and I I think she's phenomenal in it she doesn't get enough credit as an
0: actor well I mean I think we can all agree this is a fantastic film if you haven't seen it definitely go see it if it's been a long time since you've seen it give it a rewatch and if you've got any sort of cool interesting remarks or comments that you want to shoot at us you can do so by calling us at one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. 534 8807 that's one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. 534 8807 or you can email us at movies at wisecrack.co that's movies at wisecrack.co we don't have a ton of time but I do want to get to one voicemail so so, producer Matt, cue up whichever of the voicemails you want. Ryan, hold that thought. We'll close it with it on the other side of the voicemail. We'll have it be like a final, like a, like a post little epi- epilogue thing um, that we'll, well get to. Well, I wanted to hear Matt, your you scene.
2: Up? I don't think you said a scene, right? Uh, oh, no, mine said? was
0: the pool scene.
3: Oh, okay. The pool scene right. where they,
0: yeah, yeah, where they, I, I, just love the vibe. It creates the feeling of that world, and I feel like it's the so IM immersive.
3: Cuba though,
0: yeah. yeah, it's just it, it's so fantastic because um, it makes me feel that. And I actually love the opening shot where it just kind of goes up the sign that says Receda, and I actually laughed to myself because I was like, "Oh, Receda!" Like I, I used to hang out in that area, you know, when I was younger in the San Fernando Valley. I had friends uh, from and where tennis introducing camp. Introducing all the characters. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I i love the way the camera moves so those types of sequences i I love i love like um a long take anyway especially if it's on steadicam it's one of my favorite things in the entire world if it's done well so yeah. yeah, that's, that's, that's my favorite. Song. Okay. No, no. Okay. One more. Okay. One more, one more. Yeah, Last shot yeah, yeah.
2: I want to say, just cause it's so awesome. And it kind of encapsulates how much I love him <laughs> as a director. It's just when Julianne Moore, who we've seen the whole time is this amazing. you know, she's fun loving mom figure and stuff, and then we see uh, the courtroom scene and her uh, losing uh. custody of her kids and stuff like that or whatever. Um, and then that shot of her outside the courthouse, which is from across the street, you're seeing all the cars that are going in and out of the foreground and you're j- and she's just bawling her eyes out. Like, I think about that shot a lot because it's just kind of in the middle. It's such a sad moment that, you know, really gives all this depth to her character in the middle of a fun movie. And it's a different, you know, it's a documentary style shot almost in a, in a movie with all these controlled, very precise steadicam shots. So the fact, yeah, that's just an example of him being a good director and just like knowing when to switch it up and knowing when to hold and knowing when to do these wonders and all that stuff
3: even in a three-hour movie there are so many instances just like that of just phenomenal economical editing yeah like that that keeps this baby moving it doesn't it doesn't feel like three hours but can we
0: keep talking about this for two <laughs> yeah hours? Right, i right, know right. Right. that's <laughs> the thing i i, I actually <laughs> have i have like six other things that i wanted to discuss and we're not even going to get to get to them so i'm sure we'll come back to you know what we need to do we need to just torture ryan and do inherent vice just so we can fucking oh talk god. about god no, no, i no, would okay. love
2: to have an hour where i can rant <laughs> for an hour on that fucking movie
0: fucking <laughs> thank you i would i would welcome that <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, we'll, let's we should up. definitely
3: do more Paul Thomas Anderson. Whatever we do,
0: we absolutely have to. Uh, let's queue up one of the voicemails and then we'll close on one of that one. So, uh, if you want to call us, you can call us one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. Leave us a voicemail. Leave us your thoughts. What do we got this week to uh, listen to?
1: Hello, from longtime wisecrack listener.
0: Uh, the reason I called in? Well, you guys asked first
1: people to call in the voicemails. And I decided to be that person. Do do do. Well, I'm calling in about to talk about Suicide Squad. Uh, one interesting thing I, I feel like you guys didn't really touch on uh, about the movie is, well, the, the whole idea of the Suicide Squad is that people are disposable. All the all the bad guys that they put in the movie, you know, they, they slaughter them left and right. And in turn, those bad guys also treat human lives as disposable. But in, like, in a very hand-fisted way, they show that the theme of the movie, that even the most lowly and, like, despicable people of humanity also have value, you know, like, Taika Waititi basically says it. so I think it's interesting how these two things are just proposed to in the movie, right, all these people who are shown to be, like, disposable dying all the time, but saying that every single person has values, and I feel like that's a very mixed message in the movie, and I don't, I don't know. Like, you know, like, you know, like, I feel like there's something there, you know, like, what what. Are people in the world of suicide, are they good or are they bad at their core? Like even like Amanda Waller and all the people who work for her in the government, you know, like they're shown to be pretty terrible people at the beginning of the movie, betting on who's going to live and die and you know, Amanda's Waller acts and speak for herself. But they are the same people who like her workers the same one who knocked out Amanda Waller and, you know, allow the suicide squad to save innocent people. So I don't know. Uh, uh do you guys have anything smart to say about that? Uh, uh thanks for taking my call.
0: Love listening to you guys. Yeah, thank you so much. What do you think uh, is there a mixed message in Suicide Squad? What is it saying about the nature of humanity?
2: I think that the, the Suicide Squad I think you to- the guy was totally right uh but what there's it's almost like a uh, Seinfeld or it's always sunny in Philadelphia, or it, it's mm-hmm. a, it's one of those things where it's like, all right, everybody in this movie is an asshole. There literally is not a not asshole in the bunch, but we're seeing, you know, what makes them tick and, and, and that they're human beings too. Like it's a, I, I thought that James Gunn did a pretty good job of, of mixing those two vibes and really making you feel like, all right, yeah, these people will do anything to survive, including killing their best friends and turning on people or whatever, you know, or killing all these other indiscriminate people indiscriminately, but, and they're doing it for selfish reasons, but they're, they also, yeah, there's love in there somewhere too. So I think that's part of the message.
0: Raymond, what do you think, brother?
3: Um, I think there's some, uh, some bad folks doing good things by the Mm. end of the day. Yeah. And, uh, that's always, that's always compelling on screen. They make, uh, they make very fun, uh, anti-heroes. Uh, you know, we, we covered some of this on our episode. Uh, we appreciate the call, but, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's as simple as that. They're, uh, they're, they're not great people they may not even be good people but mm-hmm. they find it within themselves to do the right thing when it matters the most and uh you know that's always going to be compelling or not necessarily always but it's a winning formula if you do it right, well if you do it right to get
2: meta and stuff you know do you think <laughs> that the movies say anything about forgiveness and whatnot like can people mm. that have you know what makes a bad person is it that i've done yeah, all redemption. this bad stuff or or can a person change you know like him and his daughter and stuff can is there anything once you've done all this bad stuff are you just a worthless piece of shit forever you know like Mm. like or or does it matter you know if you do the right thing at all uh, at some point like i think that those are all present in the movie too
3: there's oh there's it's always what's the i'm about to butcher a famous quote there's never a bad time to do the right thing Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember where I heard that.
0: I'll put my philosophy professor hat on for just 20 seconds here and say there's some really interesting themes of justice in this film. Punitive justice is kind of typical of like retribution, right? Like eye for an eye type of logic and that's what we're accustomed to in countries like the United States and and in much of the Western world but there are other forms of justice rehabilitative justice and restorative justice that allow for the possibility of what Ryan just said for forgiveness for redemption for assimilating somebody back into society for teaching for correction for training and I would just say that when we encounter a film like this what we can do is we can really put our critical thinking hats on and not be so quick to try to rush to are these good guys versus bad guys but really that binary itself we can deconstruct And we can say, well, what is goodness in relation to the service of what? Because clearly, you know, John Cena's character was doing the good thing by serving the interests of the Empire. But is that good or was Bloodsport good by kind of doing the opposite, by actually defying the orders of the authority, right? So who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? What is the good thing? What is the bad thing? These are tensions that we can always wrestle with, and I think it's good to sometimes just sit there and hold them. And we can't keep talking because we are like 10 minutes late, (laughs) and I just opened a whole can of worms. <laughs> no, but to but go ahead, to tie go it back quick. into
3: Boogie Nights, yeah. uh, but to tie it back into Boogie Nights, it all starts with uh acknowledging the humanity of others. Yeah. And and like I said before, not judging the characters whether they be on screen or off screen, you know. Just just look for the humanity. Ten seconds, now, Ryan, you did The it. only <laughs> reason I
2: said I forgot to even finish the tag on why I brought the meta part up, and that was because you know I've seen people even allude to this that like it it, it mirrors James Gunn's little controversy from a couple years ago. You know mm. what I mean? Like it's like like is he a piece of shit because he you know he 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 made all these incendiary tweets for a uh, ago and stuff. So, so I don't know. There's a whole like whatever you want to call it uh, forgiveness. Canceling, I don't
0: know. Uh, 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 yeah. Meta theme. I think you could take from that movie if you were to dig deep far enough. This is the messy stuff of living as humans in society. That's what I have to say. All <laughs> All right. All right. In society. Let's let's get out of here. Where can we find you on the internet, Ryan? Ryan Shorts. I'm releasing them more now, and I'm
2: putting them on Instagram now. I didn't used to, yeah. but I'm getting up with the times. Ryan Shorts.
0: Finally. Ready. Where now when are you going to get on tiktok is the question because that's uh, the real my
2: next that. project
0: <laughs> all
3: right raymond what about you brother uh you can find me on twitter and letterboxd i'm at crematoria uh if you uh follow me say hi always uh down to talk about movies
0: sweet and you can find me austin underscore hayden on twitter aus underscore hay on insta i'm on tiktok although i haven't uploaded anything lately but i'm austin dot hayden that's pretty much it. Ryan, send us out of here, brother. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. This has been Show Me the Minute.